everyone, and welcome back to Beyond the Veil, a Harry Potter podcast all about mental health. I'm your host, Madison Ford. I hope you've all been having a lovely summer, or a winter, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. For those of you headed back to classes, I hope that your school year starts as magically as Harry's does at Hogwarts, though hopefully with a little less drama. (laughs) Uh, In today's episode, we're speaking to Jennifer Morris, Jennifer is a mental health counselor, and she has a blog on her website featuring lots of in-depth articles tying together Harry Potter and mental health concepts. She shared some of those and lots more in this interview, so let's dive in. All right, welcome back to Beyond the Veil, everybody. Today on the show, we have Jennifer Morris. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Of course. Will you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? I am a psychotherapist living in Michigan. Um, I have a private practice in the Detroit suburbs, um, and I've been in that space for about two years, um, practicing since 2012. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then also um, some things about me on a personal level. Um, of course, I'm into reading. I love audiobooks, um, podcasts, of course. Um, I play The Sims and trying to get into knitting. And then also I have a nine-year-old Siberian Husky Rescue and she she is my heart. My goodness. <laughs> you have any like Harry Potter information about yourself you want to share? Yes, so I'm a proud Slytherin. Um, I was sorted into Thunderbird. My Patronus is a type of a dog, which is a Mastiff. I don't know how that happened, um, but I'm (laughs) just going to go with it. Um, And then my wand, according to Pottermore, is Hazelwood with a Phoenix Core Feather, nine and three quarters with the reasonably supple flexibility um, and then my favorite book and movie is Half-Blood Prince, both of them. Wonderful. I love that's a don't always see the double like favorite book, same as a favorite movie. So that's a that's a fun fact. Yeah. Today, we're kind of talking about you have a background as a mental health professional. Um, so let's get started with talking about how you got interested in mental health initially. Um, so when I was first trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I initially wanted to be a politician and a lawyer. Um, and this was mainly because of like social aspects and wanting to help marginalized communities, especially the LGBT community. Um, and so I realized pretty quickly after George Bush Jr. was reelected that I wasn't going to get very far that way, <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to target larger groups of people in that way for change. Um, so I just shifted my focus on an individual basis and feeling that I could make much more of a difference one life at a time. And Um, You know, I had taken an AP psychology class that really solidified that idea for me. Um, So from there, it just kind of became my goal and I just plowed right through. So here we are. I love that. That's a a journey based on helping people. You know, I love hearing that. So kind of how and when did you really make that journey to, as you say, you, you took an AP psychology class. So was it in college that you kind of decided mental health was the route you wanted to follow? It was before college. Okay. Um, Yeah. So the AP class was my senior year of high school. Um, I had actually studied abroad in England earlier that year, which I think probably was influenced by Harry Potter. Um, (laughs) So that's a little fun fact. Um, So since then, you have uh, studied mental health. um, And now you are practicing mental health and offering Harry Potter therapy to your clients. Um, And on your website, you have an extensive amount of blogs um, with a lot of in-depth analysis of mental health issues, elements of the Potter books, and they're actually were recommended by another guest as a resource. So I know anybody looking for Harry Potter therapy has probably stumbled upon your blog. Um, So 
with this like level of in-depth analysis, it's clear that you are a big fan of the Potter series. And so I would love to know how your relationship with the Potter fandom began. Well, um, surprisingly, I was first introduced to it in fourth grade. My fourth grade teacher would read it to us as story time, I guess. And we never finished it. And I don't remember why I never pursued it on my own for reading. Um, I had just kind of avoided it up until um, uh, middle school. And in sixth and seventh grade, I had these couple of friends who were really into Harry Potter. And they always talked about it. It was like all they wanted to talk about or how it seemed um, that they (laughs) only wanted to talk about it. And so that kind of was irritating to me at the time. And I was like, God, like, they would tell me to read it. And I'd be like, I'm never reading these books because it's all you talk about. And (laughs) (laughs) so I resisted it. And then um, eventually, I think it kind of creeped in on me. And I'm that kind of person who I have to decide to do something on my own terms. And um, I started probing questions about the books on my own, just kind of on the sly when I was one-on-one with one of my friends. And I hate surprises. So um, I was asking about Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets and just had her run me through. I think only the first four books were out at the time. Um, And so she, she was telling me about Chamber of Secrets and I was like, a giant snake are you kidding me like that's my worst fear I'm oh, no. never reading these and then she told me about prisoner of Azkaban and I think there's something about the relationship between Harry and Sirius um, and finding out about that that kind of sparked the interest for real there and um, at some point I wound up picking up the books and then once I did I voraciously devoured all of them and I remember my dad coming in and yelling at me for having (laughs) the books out so late and so I would close the door and turn the lights off and have (laughs) the flashlight under my bed (laughs) um so then it was just history um and now I think I have left those friends in the dust with how obsessed I am with Harry Potter and how little I think it plays a role in their life now (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I think we all have friends somewhat like that. There's uh, some of us, no one can match our enthusiasm for Potter except other Potterheads. So, yes, yeah, um, it's great to talk to another Potterhead on my level for sure. Yes. <laughs> so, at what point did you begin to integrate Harry Potter with uh, psychotherapy and mental health? Well, um, during my internship, and it was 2012, um, it was my first year of having an official caseload anywhere, and um, it became apparent to me without getting into specifics um, for confidentiality reasons and everything, but just Mm -hmm. that um, with that particular situation, that fusing Harry Potter with therapy would, would make the process much more comfortable for that person. Um, and I really needed therapy to be a good experience in order for it to be helpful. So um, that's kind of how that started. Wow. That's really awesome. That uh, Something that's always fascinated me, because I'm not a mental health professional, um, but I've seen a therapist and trying to imagine what the process is like on the other side when you're figuring out, you know, what's going to be best for this particular client. Um, I've always been interested in that process and it's it's just so awesome to hear that uh, Harry Potter was one of the solutions. So that's uh, that's really wonderful. I know that since then you've kind of grown to incorporate it more in your submission. You told me that your office is totally decked out in Potter decorations. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so Right now, what I have is a sorting hat. Um, I have a mini mirror of Erised and a pensive set. And I don't know if you've seen it, but it, it comes with memory flasks. And um, there's a journal with a little basin set inside of it. And it comes with like a, a quill pen. Um, and then I also have a snowy owl figure that makes an appearance every winter. And it looks just like Hedwig. So, so for now, that's that's what I have working with. That's wonderful. Are there any, like, do you get any reactions to it? Yes. So always the sorting hat. That's usually the first thing that people notice. I think that seeing it is kind of like exciting for people. 
Definitely. I know I, if I went in anywhere and saw anything like that, it would just be an instant sign of like, wait a second, this person will understand me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I also know that sometimes people choose me over another therapist, like if they're searching for a therapist and then they see the Harry Potter stuff and then that's like, oh, okay, well, now I know who I'm going to go with. So <laughs> sometimes um, it doesn't take people by surprise because that's part of their selection process. Just very interesting when that happens. Yeah, definitely. That's really wonderful that people can make their decisions like that. So in your blogs, which I mentioned before, uh, there's a really detailed application of different like psychological concepts and therapy strategies to specific scenarios in the Potter books. Can you talk to us kind of about the writing process behind these pieces in your blog? Yes. So um, my process is a little weird. Um, when I first started the blog, um, I sat down and thought of pretty much every possible psychological theme that I felt stood out to me from the books. Um, I already had my therapy website, so I just kind of made a skeleton page just for the Harry Potter therapy part. And um, so on it, I have an outline of different subjects with clickable links. And, and once I fill out that particular topic, you can click on it and go to that one. Um, but I haven't filled out all of them yet. So I'm slowly working my way through them. Um, and then usually when I write a blog post, it tends to start out with explaining a particular psychological construct and include sources whenever possible. Um, and then I tie in those constructs with the Harry Potter examples that stood out to me. Um, and the hope is that through using Harry Potter themes as an example, it will allow a deeper understanding of that psychological construct so that a person then feels more confident applying it to themselves. Um, I usually end a post with a visualization journal exercise that uh, will guide a person through the appropriate steps needed to mentally process or experience whatever task is set. Um, and of course, as a disclaimer, please understand that these, these exercises are not a replacement for therapy with a licensed mental health professional um, and should be used with caution. So if you know that there's something that's particularly triggering and you think that starting one of them could potentially open something up that you can't manage, you can't put it back for yourself, um, then leave that and maybe attempt that one with, with a therapist. Definitely, definitely. And thank you for that. So I would love to go in a little bit more detail on a couple of these blog posts. And the one that really stood out to me um, is the one about the devil snare and panic attacks. Um, so just to kind of walk through the blog post, um, can you start by talking about what is, for anyone who doesn't know, what is a panic attack? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'm going to actually go straight to the source here. Um, so what therapists use um, is called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. So we're on what's called the DSM version 5 now. And uh, according to the DSM, a panic attack is an abrupt surge of intense fear or intense discomfort that reaches a peak within minutes uh, and during which time four or more of the following occur. So um, one is palpitations, pounding heart or accelerated heart rate two, sweating, three, trembling or shaking, four, sensations or shortness of breath or smothering, five, feelings of choking, six, chest pain or discomfort, seven, nausea or abdominal, abdominal distress, um, eight, feeling dizzy, unsteady, lightheaded or faint, nine, chills or heat sensations, 10, numbness or tingling sensations, 11 is feelings of unreality or being detached from oneself. 12, fear of losing control or going crazy. And 13 is a fear of dying. So you only need four of those to be occurring in order for that to be considered a panic attack. There's a lot to a lot of different symptoms, um, potentially. And I will say that often people end up going to the emergency room with a panic attack because it feels like a heart attack. And um, one thing that people should know is you can't die from a panic attack. 
what could happen is if you're doing something dangerous, like operating machinery or driving when you have one, that could put you in potential danger because you're distracted. Um, but the panic itself, the panic attack itself will not cause you any harm. It's a nice reminder, I know, for myself personally and for everybody listening, the panic attack itself is not going to kill you. Um, so good to hear. And um, it kind of speaks for itself, but I'd like you to walk us through how a panic attack is similar to the devil's snare in Harry Potter. Yeah, of course. Um, so the way I see it, is when devil snare binds your arms and legs to choke you. Um, naturally, the first reaction is to thrash around and fight to get free. Um, however, fighting the devil snare is the worst thing a person can do because that causes the plant to squeeze tighter and kill faster, according to you know the literature. Um, and it seems as though the sensation of being ensnared by the devil snare mimics the physiological symptoms I mentioned just a moment ago from the DSM. Um, as well as the thoughts occurring during a panic attack. So basically, the more a person attempts to stave off or stop a panic attack, the worse it gets. Um, in the movie version of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the devil, snare, um, <clears throat> the devil Snare will release you if you relax and stop struggling against it. I believe it's different in the books, but we'll go with the movie because that's the most helpful here. Um, <laughs> so... So we'll just use the differences as a, as a positive thing. Um, when you stop fighting a panic attack and let go, it will subside faster. It's really not your job to try to make it stop. Wonderful. Uh, it, it makes perfect sense. And um, I know for me personally and other people, sometimes in the moment, it's kind of difficult to figure out, hey, wait, I'm having a panic attack. Um and even if you do realize it, sometimes you can't even remember that it's best to, you know, take a deep breath, try to relax. I love in the blog, you kind of described it as Professor Sprout's voice, you know, reminding you what the devil's snare is and how to fight it. So how can we kind of strengthen that voice and help us identify panic attacks and remember how to take them on? So in general, just to give you a little bit more background. Um, so in general, when you have anxiety, there tends to be a strong relationship with either a need for control or to avoid control altogether as a way of managing it. Um, and the truth of the matter is that the less you try to have control, the more you actually have. So a need for control ends up controlling you instead. Um, and it's not your job to stop the panic attack. So um, you know, when you try to control it, it makes it worse. People find that it gets even stronger when they try to fight it off. Um, so the best thing you can do is to take away the power it has over you. So basically, if you welcomed your panic attacks like an old friend, then they would likely stop occurring. So while it might feel unnatural to relax your body when you're smothered by a panic attack, it is the best way to shorten the duration. So imagining Professor Sprout's lecture in your memory. Um, so I have that written that way. So you'll visualize something comforting, Professor Sprout's voice, especially if you're a fan. Um, so I'm going to kind of go through this exercise with you as if I were kind of coaching a client through it, just so you can kind of hear it. Um, Love that. So um, imagine Professor Sprout's voice, not my voice. Um, so devil snare will loosen its hold on you if you relax. It also hates sunlight and fire. It likes to be in a cool, damp place. Mustering all of your courage, you focus on relaxing your body starting from head to toe. You feel tension in your head and you slowly release it. Then you focus on your neck, tensing and relaxing those muscles until they feel relaxed. Then move on to your shoulders. Squeeze as hard as you can and then release. Move down to your underarms, back, your lower back, your abdomen, hips, thighs, your knees, calves, shins, the heels of your feet, your arches, and then your toes. Imagine the feeling of sun rays beaming down on you, making you feel warm and soothed. 
With a clear head, you realize that you can easily solve your problem. You grab your wand and recite the incantation, Lumos Solem. A jet of sunlight streams from the wand and a bright light bursts through the dark room. You can hear the faintest scream of the devil snare before it shrinks away, releasing the tendrils ensnared over your body. You feel a weight lift off of you and your body is now the lightest and calmest you have ever felt. So that's what I have for that. Um, just as a note, the Lumos Salem is a movieism as well. I think in the books, it's like a blue flame. Um, so you can swap it out if it, if it matters. Um, but I think that the, the light is important here because I have found in my personal experience as a therapist that when people are doing visualizations and meditations to relax, there's something almost instantaneous that happens when light gets brought into that visualization. It's like the warmth just has this magical healing ability. Um, so I, th I would recommend the Lumos Salem here if you're okay with that. So that's um, what I have for that. It's wonderful. I was kind of doing the exercise as you were saying it and uh, it just, it's, it's so it amazes me every time. I probably said this a dozen times on this podcast, but how integrating Harry Potter into anything like that can just make it make any kind of therapeutic exercise that much more powerful when you have that connection there. So, talking about panic attacks, um, we also look at on your blog. You go in depth on boggarts and death anxiety. These are all kind of different manifestations of fear or anxiety. And I'm curious to know what other ways you see these fears and anxieties potentially manifested throughout the Potter series. Um, that's a good question. And as others on this podcast have mentioned, there's definitely a PTSD theme in Order of the Phoenix. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go into that one because you've all heard it. <laughs> you've heard it already. Um, but basically, some other things I've noticed, Hermione, she has some pretty bad anxiety regarding perfectionism throughout the books. I think that part of her arc is she gets better about that later, but for sure in the first few, she's that's a big form of anxiety is perfectionism. Um, I also think that Harry's first memory of being a baby with Voldemort having killed his parents is very significant. Um, so I'm actually currently doing a training in what's called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, mm -hmm. which you might know as EMDR. Um, and so that is a therapy that is commonly used for trauma, but trauma is such a wide word that means more than what we might think it means. So you can have big T trauma, which is like the significant large event that happened and then little t trauma which is something that you might not realize is a trauma but is because it affected you in some way um so i think that um if i were to do that emdr with harry that would probably be our target memory of him being a baby um and the body is able to remember those distress distressing experiences even before we have words for them um so the way EMDR kind of works, just to give you a background, so when a disturbing event occurs, it can get locked in the brain with the original picture, sounds, thoughts, feelings, and body sensations. So EMDR seems to stimulate the information and allows the brain to reprocess the experience. And that might be what is happening in REM or dream sleep and eye movements utilized in the treatment help to reprocess the associated material. Um, our own brains do the healing and are in control with this type of therapy. Um, there's kind of a misconception that it's like hypnosis. It's not at all. You're if, if you're with an EMDR therapist that's been properly trained by the Francine Shapiro method, then you're you're actually just following a set of questions that are predetermined. You're not straying from it. It's evidence based. You ask them just how they are, and that person is fully aware with one foot in the present and one foot in the past. Um, that's why it works is because they're, they're re-examining that past with their current brain being safe and where it is in the here and now. Um, so um, I think it would be inevitable for any EMDR processing with Harry to end up going back to that first memory as a baby 
And I would really be curious to see what relief he would experience after having that reprocessed. Absolutely. That's a, depending on, I think everybody feels a little differently about Cursed Child, but that's something I really enjoyed the play and I've been fortunate enough to see it. Um, And I think about that. I think about trauma a lot with Cursed Child and Harry, you know, um, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it or read it am i spoiling you at all jennifer i don't know you're good okay when harry is going back and seeing that moment again that night and uh seeing it happen that's something i always i thought was a really powerful moment just from you know harry's trauma isn't always directly addressed in the books themselves so seeing that kind of experience in the play uh, at least for me it was a very powerful very moving thing to see him kind of reliving that moment and relearning a little bit. And I definitely agree that uh, Harry, if he ever gets the mental health help that he needs, <laughs> it would be very, very vital to return to that moment when he was a baby, um, not just with the help of a time turner. So I think also just to, to further your point, um, if I remember correctly, he had to kind of choose if he was going to interfere or not. And and it wasn't much of a choice. He knew he couldn't interfere, mm-hmm. but even not choosing not to do something is still an action. So how therapeutic that might've been to him to be able to just kind of like know that this was happening right now, but that he was allowing it to happen this time. Harry returning to the past and kind of witnessing and re-experiencing the night that his parents died in Cursed Child. Is that similar to the process of EMDR in a metaphorical way at all? Uh, Essentially, yes. So like what you're doing with EMDR is you select a target, what's called a target memory with your therapist. Mm -hmm. That could be either the worst memory, depending on what issue you've decided to work on. It could be the first, it could be So you have a lot of different avenues you could choose to go. And the reason that you would pick one over the other is you want to pick the one that is first either going to be the most tolerable if you have to build that person's confidence that they can do it, or you're going with the the most significant or the first because there is what's called a generalization phenomena where once you process that first memory that had that trickle-down effect, then those other associations that you've made throughout your life are non a non-issue um, once you've processed that first one because um, it, it sort of unlocks that issue that was there to begin with that kind of like caused that domino effect, if that makes sense. Definitely. I think that that's a more magical version of it of course because you'd never actually be able to go back to that memory physically and I wonder how how different that would be for a person um but yeah it's that same idea except you know in the therapy room they're just mentally going back there right you know not everyone's interested in cursed child but you know there's (laughs) there's some information in case you want in case you're curious Uh, Another one of your blog posts that I kind of wanted to get into was about the Horcrux as a negative core belief. And this kind of gets into some um, cognitive behavioral therapy and some different terminology, which I know, you know, that's a lot of information. But if you can give us kind of the basics about, you know, those those big key terms from that post, cognitive behavioral therapy core beliefs and automatic thoughts. Uh, Walk us through that a little bit. Sure. Um, So this is my favorite. I love this stuff. Um, So basically the premise of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I will refer to CBT from here on out. um, So the premise is that it's, it's not a situation that causes you to feel the way that you're feeling. Rather, it's our thoughts about that situation that cause us to feel the way that we do. Um, so some of the concepts in, in CBT, so you mentioned a core belief. So a core belief is a deeply ingrained value, idea, worldview, or belief that a person has about themselves and the world they live in. They're developed over time by family values, peers, school, the media, culture, 
um, the times we're living in, any kind of significant life event or any any medium that we're exposed to um, because we're sponges and we can't help but absorb from our environment and internalize certain things. Right. So those things are developed over time. Um, the core beliefs, I should say, are developed over time. Um, and it serves as a sort of like true north if you're thinking about like a compass and it guides all of our thoughts. Um, so you can have positive, neutral or negative core beliefs, but the negative core beliefs are the ones doing the most damage. Um, and then we have automatic thoughts. So an automatic thought is a thought that a person would experience in their daily life in response to a situation that occurs. Um, so an automatic thought is heavily influenced by our core beliefs. So it's much easier to change an automatic thought first and then over time um, through repetition and working through our automatic thoughts, we can begin to chip away at and modify our unhealthy core beliefs. Um, and just kind of for the record, I've never heard a negative core belief from others that I believed was true. So that's something to think about. Makes sense. You mean like a like a, a negative core belief somebody holds, like say about themselves? Like no one will ever love me or um, I am a failure or things like that. Those are very common negative core beliefs. They're, they're the ones that they're the things that we tell ourselves that are the worst, our deepest and darkest um, negative thoughts that we have about ourselves to our core that maybe we don't even want to admit to, but they're there and we have to acknowledge them because if we don't, then we can't, we can't change them. Definitely. With the power that they hold, it's, you can see that where the metaphor of a horcrux comes in. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So, um, so a, a horcrux is like a negative core belief because when wearing them, um, especially with the locket, I don't know what would happen if they were just like carrying it, like the, the, um, the cup or things like that, but especially the locket. Um, so when wearing them, they have the ability to make us think of our worst, deepest and darkest thoughts about ourselves and others. Um, the locket appeared to plant ideas and, Harry, Hermione, and Ron's minds um, when they were wearing them. And when Harry wore his, um, it, it seemed like he felt more alone and helpless and desperate. And he felt like an imposter. Like, I can't believe they're all relying on me here. Like, they thought I could do this. Like, um, and, and that insignificant feeling that I think we get throughout the book from him. Um, it's, it's a very miserable time for everyone when they have to trade off wearing the Horcrux. Yes. Um, yes. Um, and then when Hermione wears it, we don't ever really get to hear it, but I speculate that she was probably beginning to question her own intellect or usefulness because she has that fear of failing. Um, and then with Ron, oh, he's he's really the the one that I like to use as the example here. Um, he became more jealous and irritable and helpless, and he also seemed to feel very insignificant. Um, ultimately, the effect from wearing the locket that drove him to leave Harry and Hermione in the forest. Um, so similarly, the negative core beliefs we tell ourselves also guide our decision making and behaviors. So often those lead to consequences in our own lives. Um, so our negative thoughts really aren't who we are. And if you took them out, then you would still be yourself, but you would be enjoying your life more and reaching your maximum potential. So when not using Harry Potter language, I refer to those as those thoughts as like wearing cloudy glasses rather than looking through rose colored glasses. So mm. we, we can take them off and um, we just have to learn how to do it. Definitely. And what do we like, what do we have in our toolkits to destroy our horcruxes? This one is really best to attempt with a mental health professional so they can customize your process to fit your situation. But mm -hmm. basically, we can render our horcruxes useless by talking back to our negative self-talk. Um, we often diminish the positives and the realistic in our lives and overemphasize the negatives. It's, it's almost a, a human condition. 
Um, so if I could use Ron, poor Ron as an example here. Um, <laughs> so let's look at his negative core beliefs. So that way we can have an understanding of what's influencing his negative automatic thoughts. So Ron grew up in the shadow of his older brothers and his older brothers were known for their academic success uh, and talent. So you've got, you know, the prefects and the head boy and you've got the, the quid talent and Fred and George were popular because they were hilarious and, they, you know, they were good at Quidditch too. Um, and then Ron's younger sister, Ginny, was special because she was a girl and he had even heard at some point that his mom wanted a girl. And so there was nothing special to him, according to what he perceived. Um, no reason why he would be deemed as special to his parents um, in comparison to his siblings. So due to those circumstances, I think Ron internalized the belief that he would never be as good as his siblings. And that thought probably generalized to, I'll never be good enough. Um, and I'd imagine that Molly and Arthur did their best to show affection and attention to each child equally, but maintaining a household, having seven children and demanding a demanding ministry job would be a challenge to anyone. Yeah. Um, so I think any time that they were observed giving attention to anyone other than Ron, Ron likely perceived those attentions as confirming his bias that he would never be good enough. Um, and in reverse, any time that he received attention from his parents, he probably disregarded their efforts or downplayed the interaction in some way because his core belief of not being good enough would not allow him to accept those efforts. So it's in some ways easier to just kind of accept what story you've already created rather than change it and adopt something else, even if that something else would feel better to you. So Ron's internalized beliefs of inadequacy, um, I, I think they probably shaped his academic performance and his interpersonal relationships. Um, when he looked into the mirror of Erised, he saw himself as a Quidditch captain holding the house cup. He envisioned a scenario where he could be popular, successful, and liked by everyone. All the things that he feels about his brothers, really. Um, and, and as we know, the mirror of Arisid shows a person their deepest desires. So given his past experiences, he wants to feel special. He wants to feel successful and well-liked. Um, so if Ron had changed his core belief of not being good enough, he could have responded differently when Harry was entered into the Triwizard Tournament. It could have avoided that fight. Um, asking out Hermione to the Yule Ball. Uh, maybe he would have had more confidence that, you know, he was worthy. Um, resentment toward the Slug Club and not being invited, um, being brushed off by Slughorn, improving his academic performance. Um, it could have probably improved his Quidditch performance because he had so much performance anxiety. Um, leaving Harry and Hermione alone during the, what I call the extended camping expedition in the <laughs> Deathly Hollows. Um, I feel like that also could have been avoided. Um, so his negative automatic thought. Um, so I'm just going to stick with one and go with that. Um, this is kind of an example of how it would work in a real therapy session. So, um, so let's go with him not being invited to the slug club mm -hmm. as a negative situation. Um, so he might, tell himself something like, um, well, Slughorn didn't even know my name. I'm right here. What gives? Why wasn't I invited to? Um, Harry and Hermione are always the favorites. I might as well just not exist. Since I'm clearly not important, I'll never be good enough. So that's kind of a typical manifestation of what something like that would look like. Um, then we look at what makes his negative thoughts irrational. So um, in CBT, that's referred to as a distorted perception. So um, one, one distorted perception could be not being invited to the slug club means I'm not good enough. Two, another one could be if I'm not good enough, then I'm not worthy to exist. A third, my entire future of success and worth relies on whether or not I am invited to the slug club. And four, you are a failure or a waste of space if you are not invited to the slug club. So those are like the four angles that I can kind of see um, being relevant here. Um, 
So now when we get into the root of how the thoughts are changed with the step called cognitive reframing. So this is the meat of the therapy. So what he might say to himself here would be first acknowledging the feeling. So you want to have self-compassion and acknowledging the fact that your thoughts are logically illogical. There, there are, there's been a series of events that has reinforced these ideas and it's good to have that self-acceptance and understanding. So although I feel sad and rejected for not being invited to the slug club, the reality is that I have demonstrated success in many areas of my life. So we want to get into specifics here because we do it with the negative. So we have to be fair and do it with the positive. So I helped recover the Sorcerer's Stone. Um, I also helped find the Chamber of Secrets. And I made the Quidditch team. I helped win the Quidditch matches. I battled Death Eaters in the Department of Mysteries. All of this up until um, Half-Blood Prince because we're using the Slug Club example. So if we're being um, realistic here, we want to go up to year six. So Mm -hmm. uh, he will have have fought the Death Eaters in the Department of uh, Mysteries by then. Um, And then, of course, he, back in year two, flew the Enchanted Car to school he performed well in his Defense Against the Dark Arts, um, uh, OWL, um, and he achieved seven passing marks in his OWLs. So um, he has plenty of accomplishments to his name. It's just he's not recognizing them and allowing them to have their own wear- weight and merit to them. Right. Um, And then Harry and Hermione also, they say that they don't even like the sled club meetings. And Harry only goes because Dumbledore wants him to get close for some reason at this point. They don't really know why. Um, But there are plenty of witches and wizards who've been successful that have not been invited to the sled club. So it is not the end all be all. And um, also another thing he could tell himself is my worth does not solely depend on my level of success. Um, he has a lot of family and friends who care for him and he's loyal and a supportive friend in return. Um, so there's a lot more going on to his life than attending slug club meetings. He has the potential to achieve the goals he sets for himself. Um, so just as a side note, it's important to note that we're not making anything up here. We're using real life facts and evidence to contradict our negative thoughts, um, so, yeah, that's that's how I would use that with a person. That's so wonderfully elaborate, and uh, it shows the wealth of evidence that we have, how connected we are to these characters, you know, that we could go through and pick up these pieces of evidence to use in something like this. And uh, what a useful mirror, because I think we've all felt, you know, we've all felt a little bit like Ron, we've all felt a little bit like Harry and Hermione, so to see these reflections of ourselves um, is just so useful, you know, to look and see how Ron would go through this process. Then you start to see maybe how you could go through this process and benefit from uh, cognitive behavioral therapy yourself. So thank you for sharing that. That's uh, I, I've said it over and over, but I love how thorough these analyses are. I think that they're really useful tools uh, educationally and hopefully inspirationally to help people find the care that they need. Thank you. Yeah, it's been really wonderful being able to come up with these and it's a lot of fun too. And side note, thank the Flying Spaghetti Monster for JK Rowling. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, the fact that she gave us this wealth with characters that I can even do something like this. It's, It's just, I'm just so, so touched and honored. Absolutely. So this next question, uh, it's kind of a fun question, but um, I'm curious to know if there are any magical objects from the Potter series um, that you could have as a real physical tool to help clients with their mental health, um, what would you choose? Yes, yes, yes to this one. (laughs) Um, I often wish I had these. So I can't choose just one. So I'm going to pick three and I hope that's okay. Perfect. So the first one would be legitimacy. And and I know that that doesn't sound good, but it's not in a way of invading that person's privacy. 
but I often find that people struggle to express what they're thinking or feeling, not because they don't want to, but because they can't get it out. And so if I can use legitimacy, then I would have a pure unfiltered access to that person's mental experience. And that kind of information would be incredibly useful in tailoring my responses to match what they're actually needing in the moment, as well as, you know, ensuring that our treatment goals and methods are appropriate. We're talking about the same thing here. Um, and it would also help with evaluation purposes. Um, and then secondly, I would pick a pensive. So having that basin available to actually jump into a memory with someone kind of like with Chris Child, we were just talking about, um, and, and be able to see their experience and then evaluate with their current version of self that would be monumental. I can't even imagine. Um, and then lastly, I would love to have cheering charms available. I think sometimes people just need some relief and they can get to a point where it's been so long since you felt good that it feels like working toward anything can be hopeless. Um, so it wouldn't be used as a daily thing and it wouldn't be a solution to their problems, but it would really allow them to have some hope on occasion and then you know while they're feeling good they can be productive and make positive choices and get ahead a little bit um so to clarify i am understanding cheering terms to be temporary and without side effects when <laughs> properly so not to be compared to any kind of a drug no absolutely <laughs> we could all use a cheering charm every once in a while so we've looked kind of at your blogs and what you've written about harry potter and I'm curious if you, if there are any other ways that you integrate the series into your practice. Um, so I primarily um, have integrated it with my blogs as a free resource. Um, I do have the sorting hat, I have the mirror of Erised, and I have the pensive kit. And I hope that someday someone will request to use them. Um, that hasn't happened yet. But um, for now, you know, metaphors and comparisons are made at the right time in order to deepen that understanding of the psychological concepts and hopefully um, increase that client's comfort level. Um, but really, that's the extent of it right now. So, you know, I'm, I'm more than welcome. Bring it on. I would, love, <laughs> I would love to do more in session Harry Potter, but really, I'm very much so... Um, encouraging of that person to just kind of go with what they feel is relevant that day. So I don't really push Harry Potter therapy on anyone, but I think what I've noticed is just them kind of knowing that it's there and that they're with a fellow fan seems to be like enough for, for some, but I would love to actually do more in session. So we'll, we'll see, but yeah. um, right now that's, that's kind of what it looks like. Well, that's wonderful. I think that's a, uh, a quiet, a quiet reminder is sometimes all people need to sink in and feel that comfort. Definitely. We're coming toward the end of our time. So I'm curious if you have any other thoughts about Harry Potter and mental health or psychology, anything else you want to kind of talk about? Um, well, interestingly, sometimes I have to encourage people to embrace their inner Slytherin. Maybe I'm biased. I think that one of the best parts of being a Slytherin is having good boundary setting and the ability to say no. Um, and then, you know, of course, Slytherins have a bad reputation for obvious reasons. And I think people need to be more open-minded that not every Slytherin is bad and that there are some very good qualities to gain from that house. Um, and as a side note, anecdotally, I've, I've noticed many therapists that I know have been sorted in Slytherin. And I sometimes wonder if there's something about that, about therapists and their, their boundary setting and ambition that kind of makes Slytherins particularly good mental health providers. Um, that's not to say like, you know, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw and, and Gryffindors can't be good therapists, but it's just like kind of a question that I've had um, based on who I've encountered. That's really interesting. And I think it's fascinating because a lot of the traits, uh, a lot of the traits the Slytherins have are traits that like when you start setting stronger boundaries and uh, that that can really improve your mental health. And so maybe maybe there's something about the Slytherin mindset that there are some uh, more naturally accessible tools. Um, yes. 
Embrace uh, your inner Slytherin. Exactly. <laughs> so there's kind of a subconscious bias against some of the things that we um, perceive as being more Slytherin-esque. So definitely embrace your inner Slytherin and think twice before you start judging yourself for those Slytherin qualities that you may have yourself. Throw um, out that word selfish. It's not doing anyone any good. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So do you have any final words or wisdom or anything else you want to share with everybody? Um, well, so I think a good therapist is a mirror reflecting back at you. Um, and sometimes it's helpful to have that outside perspective to show you what you're unable to see for yourself. And even so, um, you're the one doing the healing and everything you need to thrive is already within you. So I just really want any listener to take that last part into account that that you already have everything in you. It's just not accessible to you yet. Um, you know, maybe maybe it is in, in some parts, but um, just knowing that like you're already whole and you already have everything. Thank you so much for that. That is really, really beautiful and wonderful to hear. I think that everybody needs to hear that sometimes. Um, well, Jennifer, we are here at the end of our time, and I just want to thank you so much for being on the show and sharing all of this wonderful wisdom and stories. And yes, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It has been really amazing. That was my interview with Jennifer. Thank you all for listening. Jennifer, thank you for joining us on the show and sharing all of your amazing wisdom. You'll find a link to some of Jennifer's blogs on our social media, so definitely check those out. And as I mentioned last episode, we're going to be doing a special episode on casting your Patronus and Dementors, and we're looking for your thoughts about what that means to you. How do you fight off your Dementors? What do you do to cast a Patronus? Please send us a message on social media or email us at beyondtheveilpod at gmail.com if you want to share your thoughts with us on those topics. And join me next time for another conversation in the headmaster's office. Until then, take care. Bye.